Welcome to another edition of Fronteras as we continue the discussion of a changing America. I'm Hector H. Lopez and joining us today we've put together a neat panel to have a discussion about healthcare from a community perspective. One of the biggest issues of our time is healthcare, particularly the discussion going on at a national level with the boom and increase of the Hispano-Latino community. Joining us today, we have uh, some great guests. We have Dr. Alberto Chavira, uh, who is a person that has been involved with the founding of La Fe Clinic in El Paso, Texas. Uh, he was involved with the upstart of the organization and a model of community healthcare uh, from that perspective back in the times of the 60s and 70s when uh, this model began to take foothold. We also have joining us today the host of the Third Rail. We have Chris Bailey, uh, who hosts a political talk show in El Paso, Texas, the Third Rail on ElPasoForAmerica.com, as we engage in the discussion today. Uh, Dr. Chavira, thank you for joining us today. It's, it's a pleasure having, with, having you with us here today. I, I wanted to get into the discussion about the model of La Fe Clinic and and how that began to build a community consciousness about healthcare in the city of El Paso. Tell us a little bit more about the model of, of, of healthcare from the, perspective of, from the perspective of La Fe. Uh, it is an excellent model. The, it, La Fe was started by some women in a tenement, uh, and it started out in one room in a tenant, tenement building. And it grew to be, as you know, this nationally recognized uh, health center. Uh, and what that tells me as a model is people have to do for themselves. The mm -hmm. governments are going to do them. If they want something to happen, they're going to have to do it by themselves. And Lafay is an example of that. Uh, <clears throat> the second way it's a model is that uh, it is located right in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It provides comprehensive services. To a, to a population that is uh, hugely underserved. It, it, it's, it in innovates uh, new aspects of healthcare, the, meaning using nurse practitioners, uh, for ex as an example, mm -hmm. uh, doing home visits, and a lot of other examples. And that, just as an example, that model of using nurse practitioners uh, started in places like uh, La Fe Clinic, and now it's gone mainstream. Tell me a little bit more about the, the story of La Fe. The, the model is an interesting one in that you brought together a series of community members to be able to provide a basic service to a growing Latino-Hispano community in, in El Paso, Texas. The story of La Fe, though, is an interesting one in that it had its, its, its highs and its lows and, and culminated, or really hasn't culminated yet, but uh, it developed to the point where it even was recognized at a national level. Tell me a little bit more about the story, particularly the instrumental role that you played in, in being a, a, a member in the upstart of this entire organization. I, I was a medical director of uh, La Fe, and I provided uh, uh, services from about 1976 to about 1982. At that point, the clinic was already eight or nine years old. <clears throat> so it was really started, as I say, by women uh, in the community itself. And then uh, 
by their persistent uh, activities working to get this recognized, the, uh, the federal government then gave them a grant and that caused a huge, obviously, qualitative leap in the clinic. And, and, and so that's, that's sort of the uh, origin of it. Give, give me an idea. I, I was I was flipping through some of the old <coughs> news articles of of La Fe, and and I know that throughout its history, in the, in the very beginning, its its roots took hold with community organizing and bringing together an entire community to be able to to support the success of La Fe. There were times where La Fe was was threatened of of closure. Uh, there were times when uh, things began to look brighter. Tell us a little bit more about the story regarding th th those ups and downs of the organization and, and, and perhaps so that we can begin to glean a little bit more as to how that model may apply to today's day and age. The, uh, <clears throat> the clinic has always had very strong community support. It wouldn't be there if, it, if that was not the case. Uh, unfortunately, early on, it had uh, a board, pretty young people in the late 20s, early 30s, really didn't have the interest of the clinic primarily. Uh, they were what, uh, maybe we still do, but at that time they were called property pimps. Mm -hmm. uh, they took advantage of the fact that, that the government was uh, putting money in, in places like La Fe, and then they abused that for their own, for their own benefits. <clears throat> so one of the things that happened uh, is that there was, there was a doctor at the clinic who was uh, the only doctor that was full-time, uh, and he was asked by the, one of the, the president of the board to do something special for him that uh, the doctor didn't think it was appropriate, so, so he refused to do it. Uh, and confrontation ensued, and then the doctor got fired. And that sort of was the last straw for, for the community. Uh, and they began to organize to oust the community. Uh, but these uh, young guys on the board were very bullheaded. I mean, they were just cabezones, like, like <laughs> you wouldn't believe. They wouldn't budge at all. Yeah. They were in charge. They were, what's going to happen is what they said. So <clears throat> what happened is then the, uh, the struggle to ask them intensified. Uh, as I saw you from those clippings, there were, there were meetings where three, four, five hundred people would come to, right. to try and change this. Uh, and so it got to the point where the, the board was uh, fairly isolated. And <clears throat> what the board did at that time is it called for an investigation and was willing to have the clinic be shut down while that investigation occurred. Right. See, well, the, the people in the community did not want to see that happen. Uh, so when, when, they, when that happened, <laughs> then the community took over the clinic. And it was illegal, but it was the right thing to do. Uh, they established 24-hour security on the clinic. Yeah. Uh, the staff was asked, those that could, to forego getting paid because, you know, uh, at that point, we had actually been decertified. HEW had said that there's no more La Fe, we're done, it's over. Uh, and, uh, and then those who, who were living from paycheck to paycheck, uh, they were asked 
to tell us how, uh, what's the least that they could live on? And would they be willing to do that? And the incredible thing is a staff somewhere about 40, 45, only two people didn't continue to come. And uh, so uh, those, those who could help the ones that were getting that, that, that minimal cash to survive, well, they got, that just made things more tense. And uh, one, of the, one of the big chapters in there is that uh, the, the police were instructed to oust us. Yeah. So then <clears throat> uh, they came one evening and within two or three minutes they were inside the clinic and arrested a bunch of people and uh, then there was a, a hearing on that or a trial, whatever you call it, and there were five people who were, who were charged with criminal trespass. I really have never understood why we were let off. Yeah. But some kind of legal argument, uh, and, and as far as the law is concerned, we were not trespassing, or it couldn't be proved that we were trespassing, so we were let go. But the judge did put an injunction that all those people could not go back on the premises of the clinic. Well, you know, there's cabezones on both sides, so. Uh, uh, next day, we were back full force, kept the clinic going. So when the HEW saw that, saw these developments, you know, here you have people, what I just described, they were asked to take a second look. Yes. So they, they set down a team uh, to investigate, and, uh, and what they came away with is that the medical care that that La Fe was provided, according to their guidelines, was excellent. Yeah. Uh, the board functioning was dismal, and they were not too happy with some of the administrative work. So they required some changes, which included uh, the resignation of several members of the board, and then they reestablished the funding. Right. And uh, and that's that's. I think maybe about a year or two after that, I left. So at that point, then La Fe was getting better and better. But uh, one of the things that I'm really happy about is that, as you know, in 2003, they were they were awarded, I don't know the exact title, but something like Clinic of the Year. Yeah. That means nationally. So, so La Fe uh, really developed into this tremendously great uh, center with national recognition. You know, I'd like to bring into the conversation a uh, regular contributor to Fronteras and also the host of The Third Rail, Christopher Bailey, uh, on El Paso for America.com. Chris, you, you carry on a show that talks about these kinds of issues. You've been a very strong proponent for community organizing. I, I thought your point of view would, would be an interesting one in our roundtable here today with Dr. Alberto Chavira. Because here we have a story, Chris, of a clinic that was threatened at government levels and at, at regional levels uh, in terms of closure in its upstart, in its beginning. And a group of people from a community rallying around a clinic to try and preserve the, the kind of services that this clinic was, was talking about. And as we talk about a changing America here on Fronteras and, and the future, it's kind of interesting that we're having a healthcare debate in America today and how the lessons that, that Dr. Chavira is talking a little bit about are so applicable in today's day and age. 
It, thank you for having me, Hector. It's, you know, it's really a fascinating story, Dr. Chavira. I, I have to say, the, I was, as I mentioned before the show, we, I had been digging through the library, mm -hmm. uh, my, my library, and I happened to come across a book that was given to me um, by an individual who lived in El Paso when we were doing some community organizing on community-based healthcare. Um, this book was published in 1987. So it's actually after a lot of the struggle that La Fe was attempting to answer mm -hmm. within their communities. And it's, it's amazing to me that it, from a national model was drawn from the story of La Fe, there was a, a national model at attempting to carve out a direct answer to community-based healthcare which is interesting in and of itself because it targets uh, very specific healthcare uh, that is pertinent to the community in which they, they operate. So within a largely Latino Hispano community, diabetes is a huge issue. And with these community-based healthcare organizations, they were able to target diabetes specifically. Um, but this never would have happened without the initial steps being taken in the late latter part of the 60s and through the 70s of upstart health organizations that were taking direct action in their communities, like uh, La Fe Clinic. Right. The, the other interesting aspect of this is uh, in the current debate, and you mentioned it, that we're, we're having this current healthcare debate. What strikes me as interesting is uh, in, in El Paso, there's, there's a lot of buzz on the streets about La Fe Clinic, partially because of the closing of groups like Planned Parenthood, where many women sought their primary care and feminine needs were taken care of by Planned Parenthood. Uh, it's a misnomer, actually, that uh, a hotly, hotly debated subject like abortion, that a predominant function of what Planned Parenthood does is provide those. And as a matter of fact, in El Paso, that's not the primary function of what, what a role that Planned Parenthood fulfilled mm -hmm. for the community. What they did do was provide uh, pap smears, uh, pelvic exams, um, not just the provision. Their primary uh, gynecological exams for people in the community were provided by Planned Parenthood. When that closed, La Fe ended up having to take a lot of the overflow. And they are providing an invaluable resource to individuals who normally would not sure. be able to afford health care. As they always have. In, in a normal health care environment, which is pertinent as an answer yeah. to the cost of what we find within the healthcare debate today. Well, let's get into that debate. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big debate going on in America today about healthcare. And obviously, here locally, at local levels, a lot of people talk about the fact that, that El Paso is now beginning to represent what the rest of America will look like in, in a handful of years. And so people looking to places like in El Paso as potential models uh, to begin to look after and, and begin to follow in reality, Dr. Chavira, your thoughts on, on Christopher's, uh, on Chris's comments here. Are there national lessons to be learned from the story of La Fe and in today's context of healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, the healthcare debate, what, what are the biggest lessons in your mind to be learned from the story of La Fe that, that took place here? Well, the, uh, the, first of all, just let me say that this national debate is about healthcare reform. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not about health uh, medical care reform, although people who are trying to derail this are trying to uh, try and convince other people that everything is going to change medically when in fact uh, 
but that's not going to happen. There mm -hmm. will be changes, but basically the medical care will continue to be provided, same way it's being provided now. Uh, <coughs> actually, you're right. I mean, La Fe is, is a great example of a success story of a community organizing and fighting to get what they needed. Uh, you see, for example, on the one hand that there was four women in the community who started this whole thing with extremely limited uh, means. So the, uh, one of the lessons that that tells you is if you want something to happen for yourself, for your family, for your community, you're going to have to fight for it because it's not going to be given to you by anybody. Uh, the second thing is uh, that uh, uh, they were successful in involving huge numbers of people in the community to, uh, uh, to defend that clinic from the attacks it, it was under. Uh, and so that's another faction that there has to be very strong uh, community organizations. Yeah. Uh, but I'm sure you, you all know that politics is, whatever it is nationally, it all starts on a local level. Right. It's all politics is personal. Exactly. It's so true. then, uh, uh, from a from a medical model, it's also terrific because comprehensive comprehensive care is is provided there to people in their locality by people who have their interests at heart, who speak their language, who grew up with the same customs, uh, grew up in the neighborhood, same neighborhoods. I grew up in La Roca. I don't know if you're familiar with that, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. sort of Segundo uh, Barrio-like, uh, at least, at least sure. then. Uh, <clears throat> and so that addresses one aspect of the national debate in that some of the changes that have to occur <coughs> is, uh, uh, is that the health care has to be provided uh, in many instances, not the way it's being provided now because it's not working. And one example would be that it be local, that it, it, it adjust and provide it according to the community's uh, makeup and needs, for example, their own language. So those are some of the examples why uh, La Fe is, uh, is a great example. Now, I have, I have with, with me here today two people that are very strong advocates for community organizing, very strong advocates, from your radio show, Chris, to Dr. Chavira, your, your work not only with La Fe, but throughout your history as a, as a doctor uh, and a cardiologist. Here's the thing, though. A lot of people talking about community organizing being dead, civic engagement on a decline, people not voting, people not really being involved as they used to. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, you, you talk about people rallying to save La Fe uh, in the times that you were there. Is that gumption in the community still present? And, and, and if it is, how do we tap into it again? And if it isn't, how do we inspire it? Chris? Um, First, I, I think we have to assess the situation that the assumption that voting behavior is indicative of any form of community activity or direct action. Uh, voting actually functions as a buffer for an institution that continually, as you listen to the story of La Fe, the individuals that were trying to take the clinic from the community to begin with were politicians and judges and a board of directors. I mean, we're talking about institutions that are directly threatened by this kind of model, uh, the way that money is dispersed. So to, to stipulate that direct action or community organizing on any level is, I think, staunchly disproven just by the labor reaction in Wisconsin, for instance, Ohio, uh, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida. 
the um, anti-war movement actually has a much more robust presence today than it did back in the 1970s. It's changed because of the means of communication. It's become more digitally oriented. However, it's not absent. And I think with regard to saying, well, community organizing is dead, how do you challenge the persistence of a clinic, just in terms of healthcare, of a clinic that has longevity and actually is still providing a service to the community in which it exists, like La Fe, or um, different, different, even more, I, I think, less institutionalized forms of community action. There are groups all around the nation, Comida Para La Vida in, in El Paso, that feeds the homeless. Food Not Bombs is another organization that feeds the homeless. Many times these are individuals that have alike care, they have alike concern, and they have uh, common ideology in common, and they take direct action, not necessarily through institutionalized roots. Dr. Chavira, we have a community in America that, that is the, the new reality of America, and that's the Latino-Hispano community growing by leaps and bounds to the point that Latino-Hispano issues are now American issues and, and affect... Couldn't agree more. And, mm -hmm. and, and they affect Americans all over. Now, with, with that facing America as, as, a, as a nation, how do you as a, a community activist and doctor ad, advise America or would say advise the President of the United States or, or our own community as to how we begin to tap back in and inspire people to rally as they used to do, perhaps in a new way, uh, for healthcare and things that are so important for the future of, of our community? Well, the, uh, the only way to talk to Obama was political clout. And so the only where place that's going to come from is from organizing uh, and organizing and organizing some more from local to national. <coughs> uh, and hundreds of thousands of organizations are, are going to play that role. Uh, I couldn't agree more with, with what you say that uh, Latinos are not passive people. Uh, they don't vote for obvious reasons, and uh, I don't want to go on a digression, but voting, the, the number of vote, uh, percent of the people who vote in the Latino community is no reflection of, of uh, their uh, lack of uh, energy to improve things for, for themselves. It, indeed, I don't think it's representative of apathy in any way, shape, or form. I think they take action in different ways, as a matter of fact. So but I how think, do you I inspire think more action, though, guys? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a hard question. And I have two community organizers uh, in front of me, one that is a very strong advocate in media and another who has been in these trenches in this kind of fight as a doctor and mm -hmm. as a member of some of these organizations that began to spring up in our community. How do we re-inspire that? That's a huge issue on the table for America today. Well, I mean, those, uh, those people in leadership uh, uh, in terms of organizing are facing the same problems that uh, uh, has always been faced. No. Movements occur for two reasons. One is uh, a crisis occurs. The surprise has been there for a long time, but it, it reaches a, a certain level. And that is what uh, goes a long ways to energize people, such as Wisconsin is energizing the labor movement. Uh, on the other side is prior to that happening, uh, community organizers, uh, well, everybody, 
they need to build networks. They need to build organizations. They need to develop leaders so that, so that uh, the better they do that, when these crises develop and the community becomes energized, then they can provide the le leadership. I also, with that, I think there's a, <clears throat> in developing groups, in, de in group development, which is act actually at the root underneath of what Dr. Chavira is saying is, the first step is to find others. You have to find others that, that think the way that you think and believe what you believe. I think the assumption today, uh, and this is partly in due to the culture that we've created in the United States, which is characterized, and I don't mean to generalize to the entire population because there's still places where it, it functions differently, but broadly speaking, um, it, there are times when you, you don't know who your neighbors are. You don't sit down and have coffee. You don't make the effort at finding things in common with other individuals. And the assumption or the feeling then is that, well, I'm alone. What difference can I make? If you find other individuals out there and establish a common cause and find something in common, what you've just done in essence is form a group. How that is to be organized and implemented is up to the group and how it's to be deployed into what it's going to react to. That's up to the group. But the key is to find other individuals who feel the way that you feel, that you can work with in a measure of solidarity. And I think that's something that the Hispano-Latino community is breathing new life back into. As a resident of the border, as an Anglo resident of the border, it's something that I have found wonderful, is the idea of solidarity not just in terms of an ethnic background or a, la a common language base, but in the fact that it, it really is geared toward improving a quality of life for the individuals around them without having to engage necessarily in formal institutions, but by taking the community's reins and leading it in a direction in which it should go. Well, you know, as we continue to discuss, uh, you know, a changing America, I think the, the conversation of healthcare from a community perspective is going to have to be one of the major pieces on the table. Obviously the discussion can't end here, it has to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd love to see, uh, have the opportunity to have you back on, on the show, uh, Dr. Chavira, as well as uh, Chris, just because the discussion is so essential to the changing America that we're now experiencing. Folks, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining Fronteras uh, as usual in order to begin to understand a changing America and what our future can begin to look like. We have to think big. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Hector.